Science starts with the words, I don't know. When we admit that, we can start to unravel the mysteries of the universe. Are we alone? Will we settle other worlds? How will we survive climate change? What will humanity look like in a thousand years? Join the greatest science minds and me, Dustin Driver, as we go through the unknown. Someone once described depression as the inability to feel pleasure. I think that's right, but there's more to it. Depression is like swimming through tar. Even the smallest movement is exhausting and frustrating, and filled with inescapable dread. Thoughts move like tar, too. They're sticky and reeking. And when you're mired in that tar, there's no happy thought, no hope. The mind can only see the bad in every situation. The mistakes, the missteps, the dangers, the snags, the bad intentions. The tar swallows anything light or good before you can see it. I'd see children playing and think about how some would grow up to be bullies, how others would work dead-end jobs and die early from lung cancer. I was hypercritical of everything. I'd gleefully shoot down ideas and mock anyone's good intentions. It was misery in every sense of the word. I spent most of my life this way, except for a few shining moments. Then, in my early 20s, the doctors prescribed fluoxetine, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, or SSRI. It was like someone pulled me from that tar pit, scrubbed me clean, and gave me a rad new bike to ride. I suddenly could see the light and hope in the world, and in my own situation. Things weren't that bad. I was okay and headed in the right direction. For a few months, I felt on top of the world, even though much of my life was unchanged. I was still a freelance writer living at home with my parents, having quit the newspaper business after two years of grueling, thankless work. I was the same person, but I had been granted a new perspective. It lasted about a year, maybe a little bit longer. Then I started to sink into the tar again. The doctors upped the dosage of fluoxetine, which helped for a bit, but I kept sinking. They gave me more, then switched to citalopram, a different kind of SSRI. That helped too, but again I got stuck. I went through several more antidepressants, counseling, and therapy. It all helped a bit, but I still felt stuck. I was sad and angry and irritable. Then, in 2007, my mom passed away unexpectedly, and I fell all the way into the pit. Two decades later, the doctors increased my dosage of fluoxetine again. This time, the awakening was miraculous. I was free from the tar pit, and I felt energetic and hopeful, and I could see the light in the world. Nothing had really changed in my life, but I had that shiny new perspective again. My job stayed the same, my house stayed the same, my body stayed the same. Even my habits stayed the same. I still ate too much junk food and drank too much wine, but I wasn't beating myself up about it. I was, finally, and blissfully, okay. I was free. I could climb out of the pit and start moving in a better direction. After years of struggling, the simple act of taking more medicine seemingly fixed me. But what exactly is going on here? I was already taking a low dose of fluoxetine, and even with the increased dosage, I'm far under the limit for the drug. So how did this happen? 
So to figure out what was going on, I went to my friends at OHSU, the Oregon Health and Science University. They put me in touch with Dr. George A. Keepers, a professor of psychiatry at the School of Medicine. Well, I'm Dr. George Keepers. I'm a professor at Oregon Health and Science University, and I'm the chair of the Department of Psychiatry here. Dr. Keepers has done a lot of work studying patients with depression and treating them. I treat a lot of patients myself with depression, uh, particularly uh, patients who have treatment-resistant depression. In addition to the treatment with medications and psychotherapy, uh, our faculty here are also able to provide patients with treatment with ketamine, with vagal nerve stimulation, transcranial magnetic stimulation, and electroconvulsive treatment. I've personally been involved with studies of vagal nerve stimulation uh, for treatment-resistant depression, and we still uh, see many of the patients who are involved in those uh, experimental clinical protocols. Um, to begin with, I kind of want to set the stage for what it's like to try to approach this problem in that, you know, the human brain is extremely complicated. Not only are there 86 billion neurons, but there are also hundreds of different uh, uh, neurotransmitters swimming around in your brain, uh, that any one of them could be off balance or doing something different at any one second. Um, so can you talk to the complexity of the brain and I guess the, the difficulty in treating something, um, something as hard to treat as depression? You know, the complexity of the human brain is, is truly remarkable. Um, each of the billions and billions of neurons that you just described is connected to other neurons through a connection that we call synapses. Some of the neurons in the central nervous system has, have as many as 200,000 of these connections with other neurons. And on average, each neuron is estimated to have between seven and 10,000 of the synaptic connections. Neurotransmitters are the chemical signal that allows tra information transfer across these connections. And uh, the neurons are connected by these synapses into circuits that enable us to sense our environment. So it's very complicated. And at this point in uh, the, uh, at the point that we're at in neuroscience, we don't completely understand the brain. There are certain problems about the brain that we, we just have not developed a scientific understanding of as of yet. One of those, of course, is consciousness. We do not know how consciousness arises. And of course, that's the personal experience of every human being on the planet that we don't understand. We also don't understand completely the genesis of depression. We know that uh, people who become depressed often have a genetic vulnerability to developing depression. We also know that stress in the environment or in interpersonal relations or stress from being ill with various medical conditions is likely to increase uh, the chances that somebody will become depressed. We know a certain amount of the physiology of depression, but it's not understood well enough for us to say specifically that there is a remedy for this person with this depression that we know will work. What I wanted to cover in this particular podcast, I, I wanted to do a series um, about depression and its various treatments and sort of 
what's going on right now uh, in in the world of treating depression. But I guess it all for me kind of starts with this uh, with serotonin, which I think that's what it starts with with most people, and at least in the fact that that's what they associate with uh, feelings of happiness. As you mentioned, uh, serotonin neurons are involved in the regulation of many bodily and brain functions. Um, as a result of that, there are many drugs that act on different subtypes of this receptor and produce therapeutic effects. For example, the, the drugs that are used to treat migraine headaches like sumatriptan act on one serotonin receptor. I'll, I'll explain those in just a minute. They, there's an anti-vomiting agent that many people who've had surgery have had. It's called Lodansetron. That acts on another type of serotonin receptor. And many antidepressants are active on still another type of serotonin receptor. And that really brings up the, uh, the topic of the receptors for serotonin. So the receptors for the various neuro neurotransmitters, serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, and so on, are even more numerous and complex than the tremendous array of neurotransmitters. Uh, we know of around 200 neurotransmitters, but for every one of those neurotransmitters, there are multiple receptors. So example for serotonin, there are 14 different receptors for serotonin on the cells, on the neurons, uh, in various areas of the brain and of the gut. Some of those receptors activate neurons and some of them inhibit neuron activity. Um, and the neurons that have these receptors are involved in a very broad range of activities. It, you mentioned the gut, and certainly they uh, are involved in digestion and control of digestion, but also they're involved in the control of blood pressure and heart rate, control of appetite, uh, breathing, sleep, sexual behavior and social function, learning and thinking, and of course, uh, the topic that we're talking about, anxiety and mood regulation. So the idea that uh, depression simply results from decreased serotonin levels is probably not right. Uh, and I'll, uh, I'll give you some thoughts on that, some of the science behind it. We uh, don't really think that depression is necessarily caused by low, low uh, serotonin. The explanation is, is undoubtedly more complicated than that. Um, to explain a little bit further about this, antidepressants agents uh, act by blocking the reuptake of serotonin into the neurons. And that effect happens right away, it happens immediately with hours after taking an antidepressant. But the antidepressant effect of the medication takes several weeks before it actually happens. So people are usually waiting several weeks before they feel better. Um, so this was the old idea about how these worked, uh, the kind of a straightforward idea that low serotonin was causing depression. It was called the monamine hypothesis. The latest thinking about the genesis of, de of depression is that it results from an environment between a person's genetic vulnerability and an interaction with their environment. And I'll give you an example of this that we know pretty well. Some individuals have a variant of the serotonin transporter gene. This is the, the creates the mechanism in the cell that takes serotonin out of the synapse and brings it back into the cell. Uh, 
Now, people who have this variant of that gene under low stress conditions don't have any problems with depression. However, when those same individuals experience major life stressors, they are much more likely to become depressed than people who have the normal gene. What we're seeing here is that the view of depression is not just a sort of one-to-one. It's just a lack of serotonin, but it's actually the way in which um, the serotonin is interacting with different neurons. Um, I'd also read recently that there are some theories about um, SSRIs and other antidepressants actually helping to contribute to um, sort of a, a, a brain or memory and uh, emotional plasticity and, and allowing people to sort of uh, maybe shift their perspective and, and relearn uh, their reactions that may contribute to anxiety and depression. Um, are you familiar with any of that research? Uh, yeah, I am. So uh, one of the things that antidepressants, that serotonergic antidepressants do is they increase the genesis of new neurons in a part of the brain called the hippocampus. Now, the hippocampus is a small part of the brain that you have to have in order to form new memories. It's critical in short-term memory. And in people who have depression, uh, our studies with imaging techniques show that that part of the brain is actually not as large as it should be. shrunken. And then when people are treated, uh, it regains its normal volume. Animal studies have shown that how that is happening is that new neurons are being generated in the hippocampus. And so that's one of the mechanisms of increasing uh, neuroplasticity and the ability to learn new coping mechanisms. Another one is that it appears that these antidepressant agents also increase in the brain generally the ability to form new synapses. So uh, in people who have become depressed, certain areas of the brain lose the uh, ability to form new pathways that would correspond to new behaviors. And antidepressants seem to restore the ability of those neurons to form new connections. So this would make sense as to why the SSRIs are most effective when used in conjunction with something like cognitive behavioral therapy or um, some other form of therapy to help uh, retrain the brain, so to speak? That's absolutely right. So we know that the combination of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and some of the other types of therapy with an antidepressant is the most effective treatment for depression. And uh, these uh, findings uh, from uh, the neuroscience uh, view of the brain suggest an explanation for why that's the case. It's also, I think, was really surprising um, because we were all told growing up, at least I was, that you you lose brain cells and they never come back, but that's obviously false. Yes, it it has turned to be false, yeah. Uh, the, uh, it's a very interesting story. Actually, the uh, first place that this was actually discovered was in studies of canaries, <laughs> where the myth was actually overturned by you know, studies of birdsong. 
Oh, because they're forming new memories and learning new songs yeah. constantly and easily. Yeah, yeah. The mechanism mm -hmm. of that was actually the generation of new neurons in the, in the brains of the birds. What is the current theory about um, developing a tolerance to SSRIs? There are uh, patients who are treated with uh, antidepressants for a period of time. They get better. Uh, and the antidepressant appears to be working, then at some time in their course, sometimes years into treatment, it appears that they're not getting the benefit from the drug. And that's, uh, you know, technically called antidepressant tachyphylaxis, or more colloquially as Prozac poop-out syndrome. Um, <laughs> there, there are several reasons why this kind of phenomenon might happen. Um, one of them would be alterations in the drug's metabolism. So these drugs, of course, are metabolized by the liver. They are metabolized by a particular system in the liver that actually metabolizes a whole variety of other drugs and is responsible for a lot of drug interactions. And uh, over time, a person's metabolism of a drug may change and may become more efficient, uh, or it may be affected by other factors like other drugs that they're taking, lowering the serum level uh, of the antidepressant drug and reducing its effectiveness. So that's one reason. Um, changes in, uh, uh, in response to the drug at the cellular level may be responsible too for some of these situations. So the way in which the drug is affecting the neurons in the central nervous system may change over time. Uh, the nervous system is not a static entity, but uh, is an adaptive entity, and uh, throughout a person's lifetime continues to change. And so uh, as it changes, the effects of certain drugs may change. Um, then uh, there, an interesting idea about this is that some individuals may develop an immune response to certain drugs that results in inactivation of the drug. And uh, so that's another potential cause for why people might stop experiencing the benefits. Hmm. And it would also explain why just switching is even something slightly different, like say from fluoxetine to citalopram would would uh, get someone back on track. Yeah, that's right. And that does happen. Uh, switching to just a different drug in the same class sometimes does the trick. You know, I was wondering, it, it, as someone who has suffered from depression and off and on throughout my life, you always wonder if there's any way of fixing it <laughs> for good. And um, I mean, lots of philosophical questions come up. You know, would you really want to fix it? Would you be the same person? Um, but is, is there any... Are there any current theories about maybe, say, a fix for depression or for uh, turning someone's mood around? And I'm thinking, you know, I've heard sort of miracle stories of people who who go and, and, and have uh, a session with a psychotherapist and, and uh, take some LSD and suddenly have a new perspective on life and are able to almost permanently wake up from their depressive state. Um it, you know, is that even possible? Is that just folklore? And, uh, you know, if it is possible, what's the current thinking on, on that, that side of t type of treatment? Yeah, we'd all like to have a permanent 
cure for depression. At this point in time, we don't. We have treatments that are very good, but not anything that uh, cures a person from it. Uh, the the uh, idea that hallucinogens might be a way to produce that cure is a very interesting one. And, of course, the, the literature on this goes way, way back. Uh, there were experiments being done when LSD was first introduced to the United States in which it was used to assist psychotherapeutic treatment of psychiatric conditions. And then, of course, uh, it became um, something that was spread across the country recreationally and was banned, as were the experiments. Now, recently, those uh, types of experiments have been uh, reinitiated. And so there is a developing literature in this area that I've followed pretty carefully. Uh, the data thus far looks pretty promising for the treatment of depression, of PTSD, uh, and of end-of-life issues. So those are the three areas in which uh, a treatment called uh, uh, hallucinogen-assisted psychotherapy has been looked at experimentally. We're pretty interested in this. I've got a large group of faculty who have an interest in it, and I've got a person coming uh, to the VA where this is his primary research interest and is going to be continuing the studies that he started down in San Francisco in this area. What we know at this point is that these agents can uh, seemingly reverse the symptoms of the conditions that I've mentioned. What we don't know is whether or not this will be long-lasting. So we don't know if this will turn out to be a treatment that lasts for two months, a year, or a lifetime. Now, serotonin is just one neurotransmitter, but it seems to be a really important one, and it does a ton of things. Serotonin itself is pretty obvious. It's found throughout the entire body. It's commonly associated with cognition, reward, learning, memory, and feeling good or belonging. But there's much more to it. Most of it, about 90%, is found in the intric nervous system in the gut, which is responsible for controlling the entire gastrointestinal tract. The rest is found in the brain and spine in serotonergic neurons. Serotonergic neurons are thought to regulate mood, appetite, and sleep. They might also have something to do with memory and learning. Unfortunately, there's no way to test for serotonin levels in the brain without opening up your skull. There are a few very famous studies that show that victims of suicide have lower levels of serotonin in their brains. But does low serotonin mean that you'll be depressed? And what causes low serotonin? Stress seems to be a big cause, but genetics also play a role. We're not exactly sure what's going on, but stress seems to accelerate the reuptake of serotonin in the brain and decrease the production of it to begin with. The end result is less serotonin floating around in your head, which is probably a big part of depression, at least. SSRIs stop the reuptake of serotonin. So SSRIs are a relatively new kind of antidepressant. Antidepressants have been around since the 50s, but they were pretty crude back then. 
monoamine oxidase inhibitors, or MAOIs, and tricyclic antidepressants, or TCAs, affect more than one type of neurotransmitter. MAOIs affect serotonin, melatonin, epinephrine, and norepinephrine. Tricyclic antidepressants affect serotonin and norepinephrine. These two classes of drugs really work, but they have a lot of side effects, and they're more of a brute force approach to antidepressants. SSRIs, on the other hand, were specifically designed to target serotonin reuptake. They were created in a lab, synthesized from an antihistamine drug of all things. That drug already interrupted the reuptake of serotonin and norepinephrine. The very first SSRI was something called Zymladine. It worked, but it also caused several cases of Julian Barr syndrome, which is rapid muscle weakness. Chemists went back to the lab and came out with fluoxetine in 1987. Fluoxetine stops your brain from hoovering up all that serotonin in times of stress, or for any other reason. It means more of it is floating around in your brain and binding to serotonin receptors. The results can be spectacular. In my case, the fog lifted, and I was able to see the brightness and the light in the world. Previously, when I saw any situation, I could see only the bad parts of it. And they were screaming, screeching, and pretty much overwhelming any of the light parts. Once I started to feel the effects of taking fluoxetine, I was easily able to stop that screaming or tamp down those bad thoughts. It wasn't so much as tamp down, but more like just let them go. I would still have them, but they wouldn't have the same effect. I would easily push them to the side and think, oh yeah, well, sometimes things are shitty, but also there's a flower over there, or something like that. That's a pretty simplified take, but that's pretty much how it works. And I guess I'm not that complicated of a person. So what exactly is going on here? What happens when you increase levels of serotonin? Well, at first, uh, our understanding was pretty simple. We thought that less serotonin made it more difficult for the neurons to talk to one another. But recent research suggests that serotonin and other neurotransmitters actually have a physical effect on the brain. They could help build new connections and even encourage new neurons to grow or damaged ones to heal. This all points to a kind of resetting of the brain, tricking it to forget how to be depressed and training it how to see the positive. It's almost as if fluoxetine is a hard reset button for your brain. Well, at least for some people. It seems that SSRIs could be a kind of a miracle drug, but there's also a catch. They wear off. When you begin to build a tolerance to fluoxetine, it creeps in slowly. Whereas the previous day, I may have woken up with almost a spring in my step, not quite, but at least a smile on my face. The next day, I would wake up with a scowl. Really, how does that happen? Like, what's going on here? We're not entirely sure, but there could be several reasons. Usually when this happens, doctors either increase the dosage or try to switch to a different kind of SSRI or a different medication altogether. But again, why would either of those things work? If it's really a case of resetting the brain or trying something new every few years or months, and it seems like a person with depression is waging a constant and unbeatable battle uh, against depression and drug tolerance. 
So is there no way to permanently fix the issues? Is there some way to reset the brain completely and for good? These drugs aren't the only way to increase levels of serotonin. Psychologists think that having close relationships, belonging to a supportive community, having autonomy at your work, and having a feeling of meaning can all help increase levels of serotonin. And of course, there are other ways to reset the brain, really. You can do it physically with magnets, or even with a sharp electric shock. That's right, electroshock therapy. Although they don't call it electroshock therapy anymore because, well, that was pretty barbaric. Now it's electroconvulsive therapy, and it's actually extremely effective in treating patients with severe depression. There's also transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is sort of like a mild form of resetting the brain using magnets. Sounds pretty cool, and actually it's something that I might personally try in the future. So in the next episode, we'll explore a little bit more about how running 800 milliampers of current at 120 volts through your brain can perform a sort of hard reset. And we'll also talk about the more gentle way to do it with magnets. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or in the Google Play Store. It's also on Podbean. If you like what you hear, give me a star and a review. It goes a long way. Thanks for listening, and join me next time as we continue through the unknown.